Well, I invite you to turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses uh, 1 through 8 and looking basically at verses 6 through 8 uh, today. So 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Before we read the passage and take a look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that uh, brings uh, truth to light, that shows us not only how we are to be saved, but especially in light of today's passage, how we're supposed to live now that we're your children. And as we look at these things in 1 Thessalonians 4 each week uh, regarding our sexuality, our love, uh, our work, and even how we view death and live in light of it, we pray that you would instruct us and uh, grow us more in the image of Christ, your Son. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4 at verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone listening this morning, I don't think it would be a stretch to say that sexual immorality is widely accepted in our culture today, uh, in the nation in which we live as the norm. Uh, cheating on spouses, pornography, voyeurism, premarital, postmarital, extramarital sex, homosexuality, all of these are widely accepted as uh, almost, you could say, normal. There's still a little bit of stigma attached to child, sexual child abuse and bestiality, but maybe even those wheels will start to fall off in the coming uh, days. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. Who knows what that'll look like? But in the world in which we live, in the culture in which we live in, sexual sins are uh, very little of a deal anymore. In fact, for many people, just a lifestyle. Now insert Christianity. You have you and me and believers all over the world. In a world of sexual darkness and perversion, God actually calls us out into his kingdom, a kingdom of light. And he doesn't just save us from our sins and redeem us from the wrath to come through Christ and putting Christ on the cross in our place. He does that. He doesn't simply justify us and give us Christ's righteousness so that our entrance into heaven is fully secure, which he's done. But he also calls us into a distinctly Christian lifestyle so that when we go out into the world, our lives don't just mesh with the world around us. And we can say, oh, yeah, the only difference between you and me is that I'm forgiven and you're not and I'm justified. You're not. But actually, he sends us out in the world to live differently, too, so that when people look at our lives, they ought to see by the Holy Spirit working in us that we are different in pretty much every way. The way we talk, the way we think, the way we live, including in the bedroom. And I know the world says uh, you can, God can control my life, but he shouldn't come into my bedroom. He shouldn't 
uh, impose in this, but God walks into our lives and said, every last bit of you is mine. I've bought you with the blood of my son. I've purchased you. I've given all. I've emptied heaven of the second person of the Trinity. And now when we come into a relationship with him through faith and we are saved, he says, and now 100% of you is mine. I require of you your all. The scriptural command of sexual holiness is beyond doubt. Nowhere does God give any hint of doubt as far as what he requires of us as believers uh, in the world of sexuality. Sex is to be enjoyed within the bounds of marriage only. It has no place outside of the bounds of marriage at all. Sexual activity is to be enjoyed in the marriage union only. So great is sexual sin and such a fire can it light and so weighty are its consequences that Jesus actually says, look, uh, if your husband or spouse steals, if they commit uh, lies or if they break the Sabbath, you can't divorce him. You can't divorce on that grounds. But if they commit adultery and if they do this outside of marriage, that is so significant, so weighty. He actually says a Christian can walk away from another believer. So when we come to this whole world of sexual sins and sexuality, it's a very weighty uh, thing. This does not make sexual sins unforgivable. Every one of them is forgivable. But it does mean this. If you look at the Bible, and especially what we're going to look at today in this passage, some sins have greater consequences. And you can make a really biblical, uh, strong biblical case that regarding sexual sins, the consequences in this life are extremely weighty and maybe even more weighty than any other uh, sins. So I want us to walk through here by looking at four main for motivators to seek sexual holiness in each of our lives. The first motivator is God's judgment. That's used as a motivator. The second is God's purpose. The third is God's being, his very existence as our God. And then finally, God's gifting. So those four motivators. So first of all, God's judgment. If you take a look at verse 6b, we read, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now, the word avenger can be defined this way, judgment which fully executes the core values or standards of the particular judge. Judgment which extends from the inner person of the judge to its outcome. The word occurs frequently in the sense of a special advocate or a champion of a city. So if you think about this, we're being told that God is an avenger. And he will judge people according to his core standards. And one of God's core standards is what? Sexual obedience for his people. And he's, as it were, the champion or the advocate of a city. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're now citizens of heaven. And we come into this brand new city, God's Jerusalem. And there's a standard in there. And when we're out of whack with that standard, God will come in judgment to set us straight. Uh, in accordance with his standards and his law. Now, there are basically two kinds of judgment that commentators uh, speak about in theologians regarding uh, this. There's a temporal judgment that can take place for our sexual sins. There's also an eternal judgment. And I'll uh, tease both of those out just a little bit here. Regarding temporal judgment, uh, that, that has to do with judgment in this life. Affliction, disease, heartache, pain, marital difficulties, any, number, any one of a million things God has at his disposal to bring uh, um, difficulty into our lives on account of sexual sin. 
And a couple other passages speak about this as well. 1 Corinthians 6.18, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Romans 1.26, women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, what's, what's it mean in themselves? It means in their bodies, in their persons, in time, during the course of their life, receiving some judgment, some difficulty. And I want us to just be aware of this regarding sexual sin. God judges sexual immorality in this life, beloved. This is the straightforward teaching of this passage. And I know I've gone out of my way to emphasize that pain and suffering in this life are not necessarily a direct result of sin, that part of pain and suffering and difficulty in the life is just because we live in a fallen world, our bodies are fallen, and indeed that, that is just the case for all of us. We wake up, we have affliction, we have suffering, we have difficulty just because we live in a fallen world. But a passage like this one should make us stop and think because it says that sexual sin will result in pain and suffering and affliction almost guaranteed. God is an avenger in these things regarding sexual immorality. And I remember speaking with uh, one pastor years ago of a fairly large congregation, and he said whenever married couples would come to him for counseling, uh, he had counseled dozens, if not in the hundreds of married couples, he said one of the first questions he always asks when people are in marital difficulty and distress has to do with pornography and sexual sins. And what he had discovered is that about 75% of the spouses, mainly men, were involved in some sort of or some form of pornography. And the result was what? A difficult, afflicted marriage. How did that happen? What's causing that? God's an avenger in these things. You can make a, a, a pretty simple argument that when we are sexually immoral, God will show up in some form of difficulty, putting it in our lives in order to get us to uh, turn around. Such results are not karma. So, oh, I'm doing bad, therefore bad things are gonna happen to me. No, this is the direct intervention of God, our loving heavenly father who loves us so much, he saved us and now wants us to be more like his son. And when he sees us going down the wrong path, he walks into our lives and brings every ounce of pain and suffering and difficulty into our lives on account of sexual sin until we turn around and repent. It's an act of love for God to do this for us. Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Another passage that lays out that God doesn't look at his people committing sexual immorality and say, no big deal, not too concerned about it. No, he actually says, I'm very concerned about this. There's also a second aspect of judgment. So not just temporal judgment, but eternal judgment. And there's a few passages that probably many of us have these floating through our minds already. Ephesians 5.5, 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. And Revelation 21.8, as for the sexually immoral, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, is there a difference between unbelievers who are sexually immoral as a way of life and believers who fall into occasional acts of sexual immorality? Yes, there's a big difference. And the question for us to ask as, as human beings, professing Christians, is this. Is my life characterized by sexual sins? Is that the air I breathe, sexual immorality? Or is my life characterized by a general trajectory of sexual holiness, pursuing what God wants for my life, pursuing holiness in this world. And I do stumble and I do fall, but the general course of my life, because if the general course of our lives is nothing but sexual morality, that's the air we breathe and the life we live, then we need to really sit down and examine whether or not we're believers at all. But if the general course of our life is, yeah, I want to serve God, with my sexuality. I'm pursuing that course and I stumble and I fall and I ask the Lord for forgiveness and I ask other people for forgiveness as well when I've offended. And then I continue to pursue that. Then we're in a great spot. That's the life of a Christian is continuing to pursue these things like, we're, like we pursue honesty and like we pursue honoring God and obeying all the 10 commandments. John MacArthur put it this way, the continual pattern of sexual sin will bar a person from heaven and consign his eternal soul to torment in hell. An occasional sinful act in the life of a believer will bring about the vengeance of God in his life, chastening. Big difference between the two. Now, if you take a look at verse 6b, Paul also says he solemnly warned the Thessalonians and told them beforehand so he's already instructed them regarding sexual morality, which was big in, in, the, in the lives of the Thessalonians and in Corinth where Paul was writing this letter from. Sexual perversion and morality was just rampant. You could argue more rampant than in our day. That'd be a, a pretty easy case to make. And so he's saying, look, I told you about this. I warned you about this. And I told you this beforehand. And so it's such an important thing. He's reminding them. And again, this is encouraging. We all need these reminders. In fact, I would argue a lot of what we look at every week is just reminders. We've already known this once, and now the Lord is kindly reminding us again of what he's done for us, what we need to believe, and how we need to live and think and act. And it is also worth noting this, that in the passage of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul makes an astonishing statement of hope. And I want to highlight that here. Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, etc., will enter the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So if there are any of us here or any listening or any we, people we may encounter whose lives are just that characterized by sexual immorality, it's the air that they breathe, then we can offer this incredible hope that in Christ we can be washed, forgiven, cleansed, and receive eternal life. And if we see this operating in our lives, the devil's got a foothold or our flesh, we're obeying it rather than obeying uh, the Holy Spirit and walking in step with him, we can come to the Lord again and admit it to the Lord. Lord, I'm yours, but I need cleansing. 
I need to be washed, not the first time, but wash lowercase w again and come to him in repentance. And God always forgives those who come to him in repentance. Rahab the prostitute, David the adulterer, Judah and Tamar the fornicators. These will be in heaven among countless others of us who've been called out of a life of sexual immorality to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in obedience. Well, second, a second motivation is not just God as avenger, but uh, God and his purposes for us. If you take a look at verse 7, we're told, For God has not called us for impurity, but in sanctification. Now, this is literally, God has not called us upon impurity, but in sanctification. Or let me flush this out. God has not called us on the basis of or for the purpose of impurity. That's not why he called us to be his. He didn't call us so that we could just live lives of impurity but he's called us in the realm of sanctification or holiness. And Leon Morris said this, when God called the Thessalonians, it was not an aimless procedure. He had a very definite purpose. And that purpose was not uncleanness. In, in sanctification, gives us rather the thought of atmosphere, of the settled condition in which he required them to live out their lives. The atmosphere for the believer is sanctification. This is the very air that he breathes. And there are some other passages which support this teaching as well. Titus 2.14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then 1 Peter 2.24, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree in order that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. God has saved us in order to cleanse and purify us right now before we even get to heaven. To put this theologically, justification is always followed by sanctification. The two are linked together. So if we say we're justified, but we're not being sanctified, then we'd argue back and say, well, then we've never been justified. As soon as when we are saved, God begins this process of sanctification. For some of us, it might be like a night and day difference. Others of us, it might be gradual, but that process begins the moment we are saved. Now, I, I get it. Sometimes it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that justification is all that matters. That God's highest end in saving us is just to do that, just to save us, just to get us to heaven. But the passage here before us actually teaches us that God has more than that in mind. To save us is incredible. It's an amazing, monergistic, God-alone work that comes to us in the package of a Christmas gift through Jesus Christ, his son. But on the heels of that, after we've been brought into this kingdom, God has a lot of work that he desires to be done in our lives. And that's part of this package. So far from just getting us to heaven to eke our way in, God is actually beginning to conform us to Christ, his son. And for most of us, most of us, for a lot of us here, that process, because we've known the Lord always and we've never known a day without Jesus Christ, that process may be like a 70-year process. <laughs> That's a lot of years to go through the refining fire in our lives and to have sin purged out of us. I wonder how many of us Christians here and all over the world are still praying Augustine's prayer. But I, a miserable young man, supremely miserable, even in the very outset of my youth, had entreated chastity or sexual purity of you 
and said, Lord, grant me chastity and continency, but not yet. For I was afraid lest you should hear me soon and soon deliver me from the disease of concupiscence, which I desire to have satisfied rather than extinguished. It's an easy prayer to pray. Lord, deliver me from sexual immorality and enjoying those sins, but not yet or just go slow because I really enjoy them. Our beloved's God's purpose in saving us isn't to have us enjoy sin, but to have us enjoy him and enjoy obedience and being part of the heavenly kingdom. The life of the Christian, then, it just when you look at this, God's purpose in our lives, he's an avenger. The Christian life is not dull and boring. The Christian life is filled with what you might call lowercase d dramas, difficulties, situations, God intervening, a, a loving parent not leaving their child alone to do whatever they want, but constantly monitoring and intervening and steering and guiding and teaching. That's the Christian life. God is active in our lives, beloved. He is not passive. He's not some sort of passive observer who doesn't cares. He's the most perfect, active parent, loving parent for our good. And we will notice that. And I don't know if you caught it. I'm sure you caught it. At the beginning of chapter four, Paul says, we already know what you guys are doing by way of obedience. Remember, these Thessalonians have been believers for about six months or so. We already know that you're growing, etc. but we want you to do this more and more. So for some of us, what this can often look like in our lives is this regarding sexual morality. Step one, you know, when I first came to faith, I was growing in sexual holiness and it looked like I stopped sleeping with people who were not my spouse. Hugest step, the ceasing of fornication. But then the more and more comes and well, then I realized that pornography was an issue. And so that's got to fade out of my life. No more videos, magazines, images. But then there's the more and more again, right? Step three, well, the crude jokes, the parading the bedroom and things like that around in public to make fun of my spouse or parade my spouse or someone, that has to go by the wayside, that's done. But then there's more and more and then we have to start looking at what are we looking at? What do our eyes see? Where do we let our glances go? And then what do we think about? What do we daydream about? That's gotta be reformed so we're thinking heavenly things. And then maybe the last of our hearts, always our hearts, right? What does my heart want? Do I want to respect image bearers of the opposite sex? Do I want to love them? Is my motivation to serve them and help them? Or is it to use them and to treat them like objects for my pleasure? And so, beloved, when, when Paul talks to the Thessalonians, we're also being instructed to, to do this more and more. So I don't know where you are regarding sexual morality. You likely don't know where I am. But I can, tell it, I can tell you this from this passage, that we're called to grow year in and year out. And our stages of growth will all be different, but we're still called to grow. And so where are you at in this process? Where am I? C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, wrote something. It's, it's not regarding sexual morality, but I think it's a helpful picture of how God works in us and continues to push the envelope of our holiness where we often find ourselves in uncomfortable situations and we're forced to grow. When I was a child, C.S. Lewis wrote, I often had toothache and I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me go to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, <laughs> at least not till the pain had become very bad. 
And the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist the next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth, which had not yet begun to ache. They would not let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they would take a foot. Now, if I may put it that way, our Lord is like the dentist. If you give him an inch, he'll take a foot. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of some one particular sin which they are ashamed of, or which is obviously spoiling daily life. Well, he, he will cure it all right, but he will not stop there. There may be, that may be all you asked for, but if once you call him in, he will give you the full treatment. And we should expect that in every area of our life, including in the area of sexual immorality and sexual holiness. God will start a work in us, but he will continue to tease these things out so that on the day we die, we will be way more sanctified than we are currently sitting here in September 2022. There's a third motivator. So God's judgment, uh, God's purpose, and then God's being in verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. You might imagine with me a Christian engaging in sexual immorality and all the while thinking this. The church of which I am a member will never really care about my sexual immorality. And even if they do, I can find another church which will accept my lifestyle. True enough. None of my friends are condemning me for my sexual sins and my boss and others aren't saying anything. If I was doing something really wicked, surely someone would be offended enough to speak up and let me have it, but no one says anything. Therefore, what I am doing is not that bad and not that big of a deal. Now, what's the problem with that thinking? They're, they're disregarding man, and men aren't doing anything, women and men aren't doing anything around them to hold them accountable, but they've totally forgotten about God. They've disregarded God. Now, the language of disregard has to do with to set aside or reject or even despise. We might ask, well, what Christian would despise God? The one who would go on committing sexual sins and living in sexual morality, thinking that because uh, God has allowed them to breathe and live another day that he doesn't care. That's the kind of person that is despising and disregarding and rejecting God. Let me put the matter just a little more clearly. It's possible to find friends and churches and other professing Christians who will approve of pretty much any sexual sin that we might want to engage in. That's very possible. I would argue it's probably even easy to do nowadays. But just because we found other people, even Christians and churches which approve of sexual sins, doesn't mean that God approves. God's made it so clear in his word what is holiness, what is befitting a believer, what he desires for our lives, and what he abhors and will actually bring temporal judgment upon our lives for. And his word is timeless. It hasn't changed. So we can fool other people, but we can't fool God. And then one more motivator, God's gift, verse 8 who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now notice the language of gives. This is the language of gift. 
So when we are saved, the Lord gives us a gift, numerous gifts actually, and one of those gifts is the Holy Spirit. And any believer who disregards the call to live in sexual purity and holiness is not rejecting a teaching of man, but is rejecting God and particularly the gift of the Holy Spirit. It, we, we probably all recognize this. It's one thing to despise someone who's an authority over us. We might despise a law enforcement officer. We might despise a judge, right? They're an authority over us. We have to obey what they ask us to do. It's one thing to despise that. It's a totally different world to despise someone who has been generous with us, charitable, gracious, kind, and lavishing us with gifts. And so if you look at this language, who God who gives the Holy Spirit, when we live in sexual morality, we're sort of slapping the hand that's giving us gifts. Sure, we're rejecting God who has authority over us, absolutely. We're also rejecting the God who is generous to us. We're despising him. We're causing the Holy Spirit to mourn and to grieve because he's working holiness in us. And when we live in sexual immorality, we are fighting his work inside of us. And the Holy Spirit actually, there's an emphasis here. It's literally his spirit, the Holy One to you. And so what's being magnified here is the holiness of the Holy Spirit the set-apartness of the Holy Spirit. So here's the offense of living in sexual morality while a believer. The third person of the Trinity is living inside of us. That person is absolutely holy and pure, and his work is to make us holy and pure, but we are stubbornly resisting his work. We're filling our life up with everything that he is seeking to purge out. So one motivator, uh, or the final motivator here, the fourth one, is to not despise or turn down this incredible gift that God has given us in his Holy Spirit. So let me conclude with this. God has called us into this incredible kingdom where every aspect of life is just different. What we think about is different. What motivates us is different. What we speak is different. How we live is different different. Everything about us is different. We belong to a different kingdom. And in that kingdom, all sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ and they're forgiven free. And in this kingdom, we get the Holy Spirit to live inside of us and to press us on into obedience that will obtain the holiness without which we won't see the Lord. And the church has been established by God to assist us, fellow believers, in growing in holiness and growing in grace and growing in sexual holiness. So if we find ourselves in a difficult spot, I would encourage everyone here to find accountability, talk to people, don't try and dupe this out for yourself, you know, you and the devil in a boxing ring, because uh, for the most part, you will discover that you won't, you'll end up in the corner all bloody and he'll be doing pretty good. So find help, find accountability, find encouragement, talk about it. One of the devil's greatest tools regarding sexual sins, I'm convinced, has to do with shame. People can sin by lying and saying, I'm sorry for lying, I've got a problem with that. People can sin in other ways. You know, I've I've got bitterness in my heart, I really have to work through that. But it's very difficult for people, for whatever reason, to talk about sexual sins because along with it comes tons of shame. And the devil loves this. So if we find ourselves trapped, undergoing a lot of 
uh, vengefulness from God, as it were, chastising from him as a father who loves us, then seek help and get, get accountability out this. Let people you trust know. And let me leave the sermon with these words from Matthew 5, 27 to 30, Jesus' words. Lest any of us think, you know, I can continue down this road and it won't be that big of a deal regardless of what I heard. Or it's not that big of a deal. Getting rid of sexual sins will be easy. I don't need help. And it won't take much change in my life to get rid of them. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Catch this language. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Way better, beloved, to have lives which are severely limited, much less free from a worldly sense, and undergoing much pain, like the losing of an eye and the cutting off of a hand, painful, than to have sexual sins drag us all the way down to the pit of hell. Those are some of the most powerful words Jesus ever spoke. So let none of us think that handling sexual sins or dealing with them is going to be a painless process. It'll be very painful. But the pain is worth it, very worth it, to serve our Lord Jesus Christ and to grow in holiness. Let's pray.